This is Evans Maragis, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest is director Stephen Lawless, who has been in Cincinnati directing a production of The Marriage of Figaro. I'll be speaking with Stephen about how he got his start in his opera directing career, some of the amazing people that he's worked with, and the wonderful experiences he's had in this profession. Stephen, could you start by giving us a sense of maybe one of your very first theatrical memories, anything in the theater, even a pantomime as a child? Well, one, I, there, there's something I, I can be absolutely specific about, which right. is the, the, where I grew up. I grew up in a town called Warrington, which is between Manchester and Liverpool in England. And my school went every year to uh, Stratford-upon-Avon, to the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I'd been a couple of times. I'd seen Trevor Nunn's production of uh, Antony and Cleopatra. And I went to see a production of Richard II by uh, a director called John Barton. And I'd seen one of John Barton's productions before, which is The Twelfth Night, with a, a, a young unknown actress called Judy Dench in it. <laughs> uh, and I saw this Richard II, and it was absolutely life-changing for me because... Uh, it wasn't realistic. It was very symbolic, uh, metaphorical. Uh, and I remember my cl- classmates sitting watching it and not having a clue what was going on. And I was shaking. It, it, it totally changed my life. Can you point to something in your upbringing or did you read a lot of books as a child? Where did this, looking back on it, where did this particular sensitivity, this kind of openness to theatrical gesture have its genesis for you? I have, with that, I, I don't really have much sort of idea. With music, I, I can put it down to the, you know, my my parents were that generation where the radio was on more than the TV was on. So there was always music around. And, and actually, when I started to get interested in classical music and opera in particular, it surprised me that I recognised so much of it because it had just been sort of, you know, as it were, washing, splashing around the home, you know. So uh, so, so yeah. how did you take your very first steps as a professional in the theatrical and musical well, world? Well, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I owe a, a lot to good fortune. What I did was in my final year at school is you know, I'd seen lots of opera, opera productions, I'd seen lots of theatre productions, and I kind of decided that, I don't know how, uh, that that I wanted to be an opera director, which, you know, working-class boys in Warrington, you know, don't really, you know, don't really do. <laughs> and quite by chance, I saw an interv- uh, interview by the renowned British director, John Copley, uh, in The Times in, in London. So I wrote to him, and I didn't hear anything for three months, and I'd sent the letter to Covent Garden, and John had gone from Covent Garden to Australia to do a show. Covent Garden had sent the letter to Australia. John had then gone to Hawaii for a holiday. Three months later, I get a letter from Hawaii. I mean, can you? I mean, how bizarre and, and, and exotic that Fate was. wanted that letter to well, reach him. Well, absolutely. <laughs> so this letter turned up, and he said, OK, you want to direct operas? Come and see me. So I went and saw him in London. And there existed then... Uh, in London, a thing called the London Opera Centre, which was a postgraduate place. And John, you know, I, I, was, I was 18 or something, and John said, you know, he's not a postgraduate, but you have to take him. And they said, he's too young. And they said, and John said, if you don't take him, I'll never do anything for you again, which, I mean, incredibly kind of him. And so I did a stage management course there. Uh, and uh, I was terrible at it, but it gave me the inroads, it gave me uh, a vocabulary, if you like, into this profession I wanted to be part of. Did you call any shows when you were at the No, I went, years later I called shows at Glyndebourne and I was so terrible that they made me an assistant director as soon as they could. <laughs> you know. uh, uh. But it, it, it is interesting how, you know, f- fortune does play a part in this because at this London Opera Centre there was a soprano called Mary Clarkson who had been the librarian uh, to Benjamin Britten and Peter Pierce at Norborough. And Mary said to me, um, look, they're looking for a stage manager for one week to stage manage a series of opera courses. Joan Cross, who was, you know, leading lots of Britain's operas, was doing uh, 
And this was at Aldborough? This was at Aldborough. Okay. She was directing uh, scenes from Bohème. Peter Pierce was directing scenes from, I think it was um, Paul Bunyan, this early Britain opera. And um, a guy called Malcolm Fraser, who was in charge of a, a, a universe, an opera course in America. He was English, uh, but I, who I knew was, was directing a little bit of The Magic Flute. So they said, she, Mary said to me, they're looking for a stage manager. Would you go for the week? So I got permission to go and I went. Uh, and there was nobody there doing the scheduling. So I, I did the scheduling. The next week, there was an oratorian leader course. And they said, look, will you stay and stage manager and schedule that? So I ended up staying for three months uh, doing all these. It was a fantastic experience, you know, leader courses. Um, uh, and then Scottish Opera came to do a couple of performances. And I met David Poutney, and David let me go and observe, uh, you know, be an intern, if you like, on, on a couple of shows in Scotland, and that's how I got into it. Before we leave Aldborough, because mm. I think for anybody who loves the music of Benjamin Britten, yeah. one reads often that although he composed wherever he was, mm. but particularly, let's say, in the well, after he moved to the village, mm. that the spirit of Aldborough, the, the sensibility, the surroundings, the atmosphere pervades his music. And I'm wondering if you could offer a recollection of the place and the coast and what it felt to be there, what it felt like to be there. Well, you know, I, I, as, as I say, I sort of grew up in this, um, you know, in, in northern industrial town. But this place is absolute. I mean, Aldborough and Snape, that whole sort of East Anglian landscape is is um, phenomenal. I mean, you, you it, it's the it's very flat, uh, these massive skies, and the wind just blows in off the North Sea. We should be playing in the background now the very first of the sea interludes absolutely. from Peter Grimes, or the right? Storm, or the storm sequence, <laughs> sort of storm interlude. But it was, and I, I do remember the... the I was there for three months. The day before I left, I remember coming out of the place I was staying and <clears throat> looking out over Snape Maltings and looking out over the reed beds to the sea in the distance. And there'd been this big storm, but the sun was coming through. And it, it will be an image that always stays with me, the sort of, you know, beauty, wild, raw beauty of this place. You were there as a very young man. Mm. Uh, Benjamin Britten had passed, but Peter Pierce was still there. Ben, uh, Britten was still alive. It was, oh, the, was, the, it oh, was okay. the year before he died. What mm. is what was the spirit of the festival? If you had to categorize what the working atmosphere was like, or what was the what's an ethos that was? Well, what I loved about it is is is, is actually what I loved about the years I spent at Glyde on the early, you know, was that there was still this air of the amateur hanging over it. It wasn't sleek and professional and as it is now. It was still this sense of <clears throat> you know, I don't know how to call it really, sort of sort of post war mate do. You know and rationing was off, but it felt like rationing it. was certainly <laughs> off. Uh, but but it was you know, the, the people that were running it were ex army and 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 aristocracy and and you know if, you, if production went on everybody chipped in to help make it work there was that sense about it and and it's i think it's a very sort of english as opposed to british phenomenon and 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 uh, i rather loved it, it and, and totally approve of it as well it seemed to have really made an impression on mm. you because you have even though you had a, a short stint there yeah. you have throughout your career loved attaching yourself for a lengthy period of time mm. to an institution to get stuck into it more and yeah. to make it to make it more your own yeah. as it were well i think it's partly because i'm an only child that i sort of i uh, you know there is a certain sort of uh, i don't know how to, what you call it really sort of professional sort of nesting instinct somewhere you know to 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 get in and, and settle and even if i've not been uh, you know employed in a, a administrative or artistic administrative uh, capacity by a company i do tend to work with companies not just once but on so like for example when i started to direct i did uh about 16 things 14 i can't remember now, 14 16 things in los angeles Again, that's very interesting because I said that when I was at Aldborough, I met David Poutney and worked for Scottish, Scottish Opera. 
Well, in fact, it was then run by Peter Hemmings, who then who, went on to found Los Angeles Opera, to, to found Los Angeles Opera. So there was, there's always been that kind of connection. Can you recall, if you would, if not the first, very first score, but the maybe one of the very earliest operas you di- directed on your own, not mm. as an assistant, mm. and how you prepared for it? What, what, how did you teach yourself how to prepare to? lead the charge into rehearsal and production? Well, I did an, an awful lot at, you know, I, I, I went the following year after Albright, I went to Glyndebourne as a stage manager and I did two years there on stage management. And then, as I say, I said bad that they made me an assistant <laughs> director. Uh, um, did you learn by observing? I did. And the person I observed, the two people I observed, one was John Cox, who was director of production. But perhaps more significantly was my boss and mentor, Sir Peter Hall, who I worked with for 10 years and who died a couple of years ago. But I worked a lot with Peter in Glyndebourne, as I say, for 10 years. And also in America, we did Figaro and Cousy over here quite a lot. Um, And I worked with him in the West End on some Shakespeare. So... uh, yeah, and the thing about, I think, you know, be true of uh, as people who assist me now, the thing about working with somebody like that is it's not only what you gain from them, it's also what you learn not to do by observing them, which is equally as uh, important, I think. Cracking open the score for an opera that you've not directed, mm. uh, which happened, of course, with great frequency when you were just getting started. Yeah, yeah. What was your what, how, what was your method uh, in sort of uh, taking it apart and getting ready to put it back together? Well, my method was you listen to it. I mean, I've always been, you know, quick at picking up music and retaining music. So, uh, so you you know you open the score. You I mean, I always get my scores interleaved, so I can always write down whatever it is I think and and next to it so you always go I mean, each in each piece of each page of music is has a, a, a adjacent a blank, yeah page of blank page. and i have uh, blank paper sorry and i scribble on it and and draw things on it and and, <laughs> and the thing that's interesting about that of course is that the fact that, that when you go in with that that is not necessarily what you do because within the moments you know the, the instinct takes over and that has a different you know it has a stronger kick a stronger pull if you like but uh but it was also you know it's about i think in those days it was about fear <laughs> you know you, you have to go i mean it, it, and it is interesting because i remember my the first thing i did in in, in germany of all things was Wozzeck. well that's and like taking calls to newcastle it isn't is it? and and you know and a hugely complex score and i mean i regret that i've not had a chance to do it since but uh you know i did all my preparation and everything and i went in and there was a very nice um, German Israeli baritone called Yaron Windmuller, who, in the first break of the first rehearsal, I'd gone to get a coffee and came back, and he was there looking through my score. And he said, "Oh God, you've prepared it." And I said, "Well, yeah." And he said, "Nobody prepares it here, you know." Which is one of the things why you have such a long rehearsal period in Germany. It was like six weeks to two months. You figure it out as you go along. Yeah, absolutely. Not yeah. very efficient. No, but I mean, it depends where you are. I mean, if you've got two months on something, then. You know, you don't possibly need to prepare it as, but 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 if you've got three weeks on something, then you need to be absolutely. You know. I've noticed in sitting next to you at rehearsal from time to time mm. that I it thought went through my head last night. Uh, Stephen, you could have been a conductor. You anticipate the music by about a bar all the time when you're humming to yourself. Oh, you're really? you're just a little bit of head as if you're ready to. Give a cue. <laughs> well, this one, I mean, maybe it's just because I've done Figaro a lot. I mean, I know this one. I mean, again, it, it, it was Glyndebourne. The three Mozart, the Ponte Opus, Marriage of Figaro, Così Fan Tutte, Don Giovanni. I did a lot. So, you know, they're, they're part, part of me. I don't bring a score with those three because I know them backwards, uh, you know. It's very, it's very impressive to watch. And I think the singers really appreciate that. You know the piece so well that even the smallest thing you ask them to do is really motivated from the music, not from some directorial conceit. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you're you had an amazing uh, run, as it were, at, mm. at Glyndebourne. Recall for us, if you would, um, 
your first impressions of Lewis in general, the little town, village, really, where Glyndebourne well, is situated? Well, I never thought it would be somewhere I'd sort of spend a large chunk of my life, really. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, this small town, it's about eight miles north of Brighton, about 50 miles south from London. Uh, I mean, charming, lovely. I mean, it, it was then. I mean, it's now just chock-a-block with traffic and tourist buses and everything else. So, uh, But in the 80s, it was different. Before the new, before the new theatre was built. It absolutely was. Yeah. And, you know, the, 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 the old theatre was, again, it was this same thing of this kind of amateurism, which I, you know, I guess I have a hankering for these days. But bit. let's also remember that <clears throat> the word derives, even though it is a French word, mm. from this sense of uh, we, I think, particularly in America, think of an amateur or an amateur, yeah, as yeah. it's often pronounced mm. here, um, as someone who's not very good and dabbles. But amateur uh, is yeah, a yeah, yeah. lover of. Yes, indeed. And it can be highly professional. Yeah, it yeah. is just done in a spirit of... Uh, Altruism, maybe, yeah, let's yeah, say yeah. it that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what was your first job at Glyndebourne? I was assistant stage manager on The Marriage of Figaro, uh, which was a Peter Hall production. And um, I stay, and then I assisted on... It was Falstaff, uh, 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 directed by Jean-Pierre Pernel. So, I, you know, it, it was a really good time to be there. I mean, watching Pernel at work was... Was this, uh, astonishing. So you never really have worked with any hacks, have you? Oh, a couple. <laughs> no names mentioned. <laughs> How was Glyndebourne evolving in your, your years working there? Because eventually, also, you settled there for quite some time. I, well, I still, my partner and I still have a house there, but I live most of the time now in Scotland. Uh, I've got a house up there. Uh, was yeah. it sheer practicality that tempted you to live there, or did you... Yeah, I mean, it was also, you know... Uh, my my partner still doesn't drive, so so he needs the train. So you know, if he's work, he's a lighting designer. So uh, uh, yeah, and it is a beautiful place. And I was I was there for five years, uh, and then I went to Covent Garden for five years, and then I went back to Glyndebourne as head of the producers. And uh, uh, so it was in, you know it was, it was convenient and, and yeah. Tell us a little bit about what the title and the responsibilities of a director of producers, because it's been a function in yeah. two companies you've talked about thus far. Yeah, it's, um, well, I always said that what Glyndebourne did was to give you more titles and not enough money, really, because I, I had three titles there. It was, if I can remember, the director of productions of the touring company, principal associate director and deputy to the artistic director. And Lord High Everything Else. I, absolutely, yeah. I'd rather they gave right? me more money and a few less titles, frankly. But uh, um, So I basically substituted for Peter Hall in casting meetings and things like that if he wasn't free, and very often he wasn't. Uh, I was in charge with... Uh, Things conductor Graham Jenkins, who was in charge of Dallas Opera for for a while, and Anthony Whitworth Jones, we were in charge of the artistic planning of the of the Glyndebourne Touring Company, which in those days featured quite a lot of new commissions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, and then, if Peter, as he usually was, Peter Hall wasn't available, it, I was doing the revivals of his shows in in the season. So, so, so you. It. Began as an assistant, and mm. then, as as it so often is the case, yeah. a young assistant's break happens when the mentor, teacher, yeah. guru, as it yeah. were, is unavailable, yeah. and you go to a company where he had been or she had been for the first time. The company says, "Oh, we really like your work. Yeah, yeah. Would you come I mean, back and do something for us?" That's exactly on your what own? happened with LA. I, I was doing Peter's production of The Marriage of Figaro and Così Fan Tutte in LA, and Peter Hemmings remembered me and he said, okay, well, look, we've got an Ariadne coming up or we've got a Ballot coming up. Would you, would you, you know, how are you fixed? When you were with the Glyndebourne Touring Company, did you go out on the road with them? I did. And I also went out with another company, which was then called Opera 80, which is now called English Touring Opera. And Opera 80 did split week touring. It was a nightmare. And so, you know, you could be, 
right in the southwest. You, know, you could be in Devon or Cornwall doing a show on the Tuesday, and by the Friday you were up in in the Lake District or something like. Oof, that. It was grueling. It was, and it was winter. It was absolutely grueling, and you know most of the travel was on a Sunday, which is when the trains don't work in in, in the UK. So. Uh, yeah. Do you really... have any particularly hilarious memories from those days of touring? Things happen on the road, I know. Well, I remember David Hockney's magic flute not fitting in, which was all canvas, it was all cloths, actually not fitting into the theatre in Norwich. Uh, it, was quite a spe- it was quite a good show. I'm surprised the audience didn't ask for their money back because all these cloths came in at different angles and never fitted. <laughs> and all the sopranos in the chorus had flu. Oh, no. Yeah, there was only one left. Maria Moll, her name was. She was loud. Thank God. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, there were lots of things like that. There was also, I remember this this operator, this English story that we played. I can't remember if it was Oldham or Crew or somewhere like that, where the town councillors had decided that day to sack all the theatre staff. So Barbara Seville started, and the stage crew came in and tried to remove the rostra from underneath the harpsichord during the overture. So this kind of pitch battle went on during, you know, the action that was up, you know, going on in the orchestra. It was much better than the action that was going on on stage. Early in your career, you eventually, of course, would work with many fine international singers from Mm. all over the operatic world. But I would imagine you worked with a lot of English and British singers as a young man. Yeah. And... If you, I know it, generalizations are are odious, but um, I'm wondering if there is something you can recall that you particularly enjoyed about working with British singers. Their their preparation, their approach to their work. What were some of the things that were pleasing to you? But were working with your compatriots. Um, I think that they're vocally more idiosyncratic in a way than perhaps, you know, American singers. Uh, but there's character in that. Uh, well, I think there's that is the prime thing. I mean, somebody I've worked with a lot, who's a great friend of mine, is uh, Sir Thomas Allen, uh, who, you know, a very fine baritone, great actor. Uh, yes, the scenery is not safe when Tom no, Allen's No, indeed, on stage. indeed. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, he's of a certain age now, and but the scenery is still not safe. Uh, <laughs> It, it, you know, it, there is something idiosyncratic about it. I, I, there was a programme on, uh, I saw a couple of, before, maybe two months ago, before I uh, was in Germany, uh, about Dame Janet Baker. Beautiful documentary. It was fantastic. And uh, the, what was interesting for me is I hadn't heard her sing or heard recordings of her for a while. But it's a very beautiful voice. I wouldn't say it's a sort of great mezzo voice in the manner of Krista Ludwig, let's say, or something like that. But what she does with it is extraordinary. This absolutely sort of ecstatic, elevated singing. And I think that that's... I'm going to be, going to be strung up when I go back to the UK for saying this, but I think, you know, it, it, that's what I think I like about it, is it... There's a lot of English singers do not have the kind of technical assurance or glamour of sound that possibly you may get in America, or actually these days you might get in Korea, you know. Uh, uh, But there is something else going on about how, how... I can't really say deficiencies or how, but how those flaws or imperfections, maybe the right word, are used to to create something else that's of equal, if not more value. I've had the good fortune Mm. in the decade that I lived in the UK to Mm. hear two or three generations of great British singers and work with many of them. Mm. And something that I always take away is their total dedication to the job at hand. Yeah. And it's not workmanlike at all. It's, this is a privilege to do yeah. this. And I intend on making the most of it. I remember very vividly, we made a recording at the Decca Record Company of uh, the Serenade to Music of Rayfon Williams, yeah, yeah. which is scored for 16 solo yeah. voices. And I did all of my research and, you know, what were the voices that sang at the premiere? Mm-hmm. And so when we went to reconstruct 
a way of doing it for Roger Norrington, I called managers and I said, I want someone from your roster who's never made yet a recording, and I want one of your best veterans. So we had eight then-up-and-comers, and and then eight, including Robert Lloyd, who was already probably about 70, mature, mature artists. And to watch the recording session of this was to get a lesson in passing the torch. These older singers were so generous with these youngsters, and there was such a spirit of camaraderie, and it could have been a party. Um, And I I love that spirit of working with with English singers, all British singers, but English singers who just really... and. Again, I'm naming with faint praise if I say it this way, but get on with it. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's... But there's also something else involved, you know, which is, uh, I can't remember who said it, somebody described England and by implication Britain as a land without music. <laughs> and I, I do kind of know what they mean because, you know, uh, there was Purcell, there was Benjamin Britten, you know, we borrow, we bought Handel um, in and everything else. But our, the tradition in the UK is, is of course, the spoken word. It's that's what we have, and that influences singers oh, yes. probably more than anything else. I mean, but in a the, positive way too. Uh, absolutely, no, yeah. I totally in a positive yeah. way, and it, yeah, it is a kind of crossover. I mean, between, I mean, Daniela Denise, who has just been doing Man of La Mancha, and as, as well as doing Massenet Cendrillon in uh, 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 Glyndebourne, she's been doing Manuel Mantra in the West End. So, you know, there is that kind of crossover mm-hmm. thing there, the, the, the colours. And it's a, it's commendable. I've, yeah, yeah, I, I, love I totally it. agree. I totally agree. Your career still has, uh, maybe is is in, the, in its high noon right now, <laughs> but you do have quite a few productions that you have done, and I'm mm. wondering if there are one or two that stand out as... I'd love to do. I'd love to have that experience again. Yeah, I, I mean, I know it's like asking someone to name their favorite child. No, but, but I, I tell you one of the things that does stand out because it was totally my project. And you mentioned Roger Norrington. Is you know somewhere in the mid eighties, I, I was sort of think I had become uh, sort of the best assistant director in the UK. Not only working with Peter, but I'd worked at Covent Garden with uh, Elijah Mashinsky, who's a great friend, and with people like Andrei Tolkovsky, uh, who only did one um, opera production. So I was kind of sort of, I don't know what the word is, settled, I suppose. I, I was, and, you, know, there you were was, comfortable. Yeah, there was regular money coming in, and I thought, is, you know, can, I, can I settle for this? And the Royal Academy of Music in London asked me, if I'd like to do something. And one of the things about working at Covent Garden and having a, a weekly pay packet was, you know, just down from Covent Garden, there was um, something called, I think it was called the Classical Music Centre, which was CDs in those days. And I remember I'd go in there every week once I got the pay packet and think, now what don't I know something about? And what I didn't know anything about, of course, was the French Baroque. Uh, opera, uh, Loli, Rameau. Uh, uh. So I bought a recording of John Elliott Gardner's of uh, Les Boreades by Rameau. And this sound world, the like of which I'd never, ever heard before. And I was utterly obsessed with it, if I'm honest. And I, when the Academy said to me, what would you like to do? I said, I'd like to do this. And they did a little, you know, you could sort of see them paling behind the you know, spectacles. <laughs> Trying to retain yeah. that lovely, uh, cool, calm uh, British demeanour. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and, uh, and they got Roger Norrington in to conduct it. We had, you know, it is fiendishly difficult music. So we had to doctor some of it. There's a... There was a guy in it called Christopher Ventris, who's now a Helton tennis, sings at the Met, sings yeah. Vienna, all over the place. Uh, uh, not the French Baroque is not his stuff, but we <laughs> we managed to rewrite it for him and everything else. It's like using a sledgehammer to kill a fly. It is absolutely, <laughs> but it still remains the thing, the best thing I think I've ever done, hmm. because my commitment to it was absolutely. It was my thing. It was my, you know. Um, 
I haven't, to be honest, listened to it since, but occasionally a bit of it will come on the air or come out, you know, in the car radio or something like that, and it still knocks me for six. And and you said yeah. something right then uh, mm. that reminds me of um, if you were to put together a catalogue of advice for for young directors. Mm. Is to it would start off with "Don't do it," <laughs> <laughs> but it also starts off, I think, with mm. find something about which you can be so totally passionate, yeah. and even if it's on more modest terms, mm. own it. Yeah, yeah, it's yours one hundred percent. You're not yeah. recreating somebody else's yeah. work. You're not reviving someone else's no. work. You're getting with whatever modest means you can have. Yeah, do it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. and this this got me noticed. And as did actually a Marriage of Figaro at the Guildhall. You know, this is when I was starting out at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. That got me noticed. I think I did that in about 89, which was two years before the Mozart Bicentenary. And so doing a really good production of the Marriage of Figaro, you know, I got, I think, three jobs from it. Figaro's Dallas, Toronto and Hong Kong, I think. Have you been something of a Mozart guy? Well, I suppose being at Glyndebourne, you know, that's what you tend to get thought of as. But the other thing that got me going was, as I was saying, I I assisted Andrei Tarkovsky on this Boris Goodenough at Covent Garden with Canati Bayabardo, with Bob Lloyd. uh, And that went everywhere. And uh, Tarkovsky died three years after we did it. So I ended up doing it. And I think that people saw, hey, this guy can deal with 200 people on stage. Uh, yes, because it is almost like running a circus, isn't it? It is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And uh, again, what was wonderful was that that uh, we did it in, it was originally done in 83. Uh, and then in, I can't remember, 90 it was, yeah, is that the there was this young up-and-coming, rather unknown musical director at what was then called the Kirov Opera in St. Petersburg, called Valery Gergiev. And he wanted to do the Tarkovsky Boris, and Tarkovsky had been dead three years, four years. Um, so I went there to do it, and it You was, went to the Kirov to do I it. went to the Kirov. It was extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, because it was just on the cusp of Glasnost and Perestroika. Uh, and there was a kind of... You know, I didn't know what we were going to get. But there was a kind of thirst and need from the people involved, like the chorus, for example, to do something that was not just stand and deliver, was to show that they were as good as dramatically, as well as vocally, as any other chorus in the world. Uh, And it was absolutely wonderful. And... Gergiev conducted, Bob Lloyd had done it originally in London, and I can't quite... And it was going to be broadcast by the BBC, and the BBC, BBC insisted that, that um, Bob Lloyd, Robert Lloyd, did it. So Bob, I remember Bob coming in to do this rehearsal, and uh, there were five principal bases from the Kirov sitting there saying, show us what you can do. <laughs> and... Bob just came in and said, oh, I suppose I've got something to prove. And he did. And he pulled in this rehearsal room, he pulled out all the stops. And the guys came up to me often and said, you've set, you know, you, you, you've set the, the, the... The standard. Yeah, really high. And it, wow. was, it was extraordinary. You, you speak of that time. Mm. Um, in things that all, many of us can read about the Soviet Union time, it mm. seems as though... Music was the one area of relatively free expression. I mean, yes, the composers suffered, and there was yeah. a lot of observation of performers who were on tour and so on and so forth. But if you see films of the Soviet time and look at the audience, they yeah, are yeah. just enwrapped. But, but it's still true. I I uh, I did Rosenkavalier at the Bolshoi six or five years ago, six years ago, and there's still this massive. I think probably more than anywhere else I know, respect for the arts and especially music and, and, and for the artists involved in it. And Bob Lloyd is uh, is someone you've worked with, mm-hmm. as you said, and you mentioned a couple of other singers who've yeah. crossed your path. In general, um, what are some of the things that you are mindful of as an opera director working with singers as opposed to, let's say, a theatrical director working with actors? I don't think there's any difference. 
uh, especially these days. Uh, I, I, you know, you can work with people like Thomas Allen or Carol Vanessa or Sandra Radvanovsky in the same way and in the same detail that you could with an actor. And, you know, perhaps some people you have to give them, you have to give them more physically, you know, this is how you do I mean, younger artists, maybe. But with Sandra Radvanovsky, I mean, I've done a lot with her. You know, I don't really give her stuff. I just say, look, what about this? And she says, let me have a think about it. She comes back the next day and it's there. Um, Extraordinary. So your singers inspire you? Oh, yeah. Or can inspire. Oh no, absolutely they inspire me. And this nonsense that's around, you know, about the diva, about you know flouncing and and and, I think, you know, in the long time I've been doing this, I think that ninety six, ninety seven percent of the time, there is never a problem. And my admiration for singers, that I mean. what they have to learn to be able to do their job but what else is on top of that I mean dramatically you know the the nonsense we as directors ask them to do you know with their bodies or or the way they think of things or my admiration for them is massive I I mean hardest working after ballet dancers they're the hardest working people in the theatrical Mm -hmm. profession you have uh, been working steadily in a time when technology has vastly changed the world. Yep. Um, how is it affected, or how is it benefited, or how is it compromised your work in all three ways? I mean, ha- have you used the advances in technology? Do they mean something to you? What are well? No, I'm a bit of a technophobe, as I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, <sighs> Now you do know how to work a cell phone or mobile. Sorry, I just just about. <laughs> um, I've got a, a, a friend who keeps on threatening to give me lessons to get make me buy a proper phone and give me lessons as how to, to work it properly. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I I dread the day that where you know the director sits at home and watches the screen as it all happens you know in a rehearsal studio somewhere else oh that would be that you would know, be I mean, scary I, I think you know sort of simplifying it but i think you know my job's a bit like cooking you know you can follow the recipe but until you get your hands in you know into it you don't really know what you're doing you know i mean so so uh, but i would say the production that you have directed for us here of the marriage of figaro is high low tech Meaning that it is, it takes all of the advantage of the the best that modern lighting can offer, yeah. and of course the performers themselves can offer. Um, the set the set pieces are illuminated from within with battery powered LED lights, yeah, not yeah. some sort yeah. of trailing cables. But the set pieces are moved by hand. There are no fancy computers or turntables or anything. And I have to say, I, one of the pleasures of this production of the Marriage of Figaro is the fact that it is all taking place before your eyes and that your willing suspension of disbelief that the set changes before your eyes uh, is one of the delights of the production. Well, I think I think that that's true. And one of the reasons why that's true is that we've never, ever had the scene changes better than we've had them here uh, uh, in, in Cincinnati. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but in other places, you know, you might not be saying what you just said if you'd seen what was going on. But um, uh, <laughs> but how did you come up with the ideas that that motivate this particular production of Figaro? Because it's a perform- it's a piece you've done often. Yeah. Um, well, I was working with you know it, because it's a piece I've done often. I try to use a different. Well, in fact, I have always used a different designer. Mm-hmm. That, you know, to get a different eye and a different look to stimulate me. Um, and I, it was the first thing I did with the British designer Leslie Travis, um, who I've worked with quite a lot now. Uh, uh, and we knew that it was initially going to be... It was a joint production between four American companies, Kansas... San Diego, Palm Beach and Philadelphia. So we knew it had to be adaptable. I also wanted to try and get out as much as possible of the four-act format, you know, one set for each act. I wanted something that was much more fluid and moved so you could 
change the ambiance within the act or within the scene to reflect what was going on. Um, and we got the idea of these two walls that move with, you know, double-sided, so you go from outside to inside. But the fourth act, as always with Marriage of Figaro, it sort of proved much trickier. Until using this, we had this idea of a genealogy, a family tree is the main idea, which uh, illustrates the kind of aristocratic background uh, to Count Almaviva. And I remember saying, at the end of one session, I said, well, I suppose there's some way we could use the family tree to make the garden. And Leslie said, no, I don't think that'll work. And I left and I came back, and by the time i come back, he'd actually made it work perfectly. So, yeah. There's a moment in the third act towards the end where, uh, I mean, backing up a little bit, I mean, it is the stories about the mariage of Beaumarchais and yep. the marriage of Figaro are all pretty well known that the, the original play was banned. Uh, the original opera had to go through all sorts of censorship, censorship and yeah. hoops in, in Vienna. Uh, so revolution is in the air. Yeah. Um, the relationship of Figaro to the Count, who was his former buddy, as it were, in the earlier story, has changed and so on. And you've chosen to really emphasize that at the end of the third act. Yeah. Talk us through your the way you came to that and what you do at that well, point. Well, I, I think I would argue with you that, that in The Barber of Seville, that Alme Viva and Figaro are bodies, are friends. Okay. I think the mistake that's made with all these pieces is that we assume that, for example, with the Countess and Susanna, that there is a natural order of friend of familiarity and friendliness between them which i think would be alien to the uh, to the 18th century is that those class distinctions remain very strong rigidly in place mm -hmm. uh and what you have to do if you want to illustrate this you know that there is something that transcends class you just have to find the points where to do it but the thing that is extraordinary about the piece and I mean, the play it was based on and the opera. I mean, Napoleon said um, that um, Figaro is the revolution in, you know, in action, and it is. It's, it is. It totally um, undermines the idea that there is a class that believes itself fit to rule. Now, that doesn't go away. I mean, what we're seeing, you know, what I'm seeing in the UK at the moment with this... Conservative Party, um, uh, the, the battle to replace Theresa May, is it is fundamentally about you know uh, a lot of public school boys um, believing, being brought up to believe that, that, that they, they are the masters right. of the universe, yeah. right? And and that's what Figaro does: is it pops that bubble? It says that is not true. You may be, you may have lots of money, may you have may have lots of privilege, but actually, at the end of the day, I'm cleverer than you are. Mm. And there's a sense of there at towards the, at the end of the third act, there is mm. the arrival of the of the chorus. Well, first you have the wonderfully sort of silly presentation of flowers by the young maidens, yeah. and then you have what is nominally the wedding scene. Yeah. But you do something that is um, that is actually very disturbing in a in a very wonderfully theatrical mm. way. Describe it for us, if you will. Well, it, it's <laughs> the whole point. <laughs> The whole point about the wedding is that the Count doesn't want it to happen. Uh, but the, there is this, you know, it's democracy. There is this force of numbers that comes on and says, we want it to happen. So, you know. And the dance is, while the dance is elegant, the dance is done with a kind of ferocity. It is. That is very it, threatening. It is. That's exactly what I wanted with it. And uh, the, um, Eric Sean Fogel, who was the original choreographer on it, um, we, we spoke a lot about this, is that, that it, it, it's not just a kind of divertissement. It's, it is something hard-edged and aggressive and challenging. The revolution is at the door. It is. Yeah. It is. Uh, I know that directors rarely stay beyond the opening night, uh, but uh, 
what do you do during a performance? Are you sitting there trying to disconnect and enjoy? Are you fretting about <laughs> the well, last little thing? You know, in, in, the, in, in the past, usually what I did during the performance is um, go to the bar and, and get absolutely sloshed. But these days, uh, you know, I sort of, uh, no, I do watch for the most part. Uh, mm. I went through a phase when I did this Wozzeck in Germany, the first thing I ever did is that we did it without an interval, as was originally intended. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's a short piece, hour and a half yeah. of music. Yeah. But, but intense. Does, but intense, and it does mean that the scene changes have to happen with the music. And I remember that um, scene change number two, let's say, or scene change number three, didn't quite happen, but only by a couple of seconds. And I remember kind of screaming and running from the theatre. And for about ten years, it took me a long while to actually come back to watch things, but... But I do watch now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know you have directed a really great number of titles mm. in your career. Mm. Um, and we've spoken of this before, but uh, would you share with our the people listening, uh, th what's your bucket list? What are a couple of things and why that you <laughs> yet to do? Well, you that know what they are. You know what they are. I mean, because I keep on, you know, coming up to people like you all over the world and saying, uh, yeah, how about let me do this? Uh, you know, uh, it's only natural. Th and, there are... and, and if you didn't, I would be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are certain pieces that I've always wanted to do that I've never done. Uh, top of the bucket list is Don Carlo or Don Carlos uh, by Verdi. Uh, what? Well, stop right there for mm -hmm. a moment because it is it is Verdi's sort of kitchen sink opera. There's everything in it imaginable. Yep. What is something about Don Carlo that just compels you? I think it's the same thing that compels me about Figaro, mm. which is that that this sense of injustice, mm. I suppose. And world un, order uh, changing. Yeah, and, and, and unfairness and world order having the, necess the, the necessity for world order having to change. You know, I mean, uh, yeah. And it's an opera also, I think, that because of its complexity and because of flaw is not the right word to use it, but because it is a, this piece that Verdi continued to tinker with. Yeah. Uh, not unlike Simon Bocanegra, where he was just not quite happy, or Macbeth, no. where and, and, you know, and frustrated. He, and I think one of the glories of it is that he never really gets the ending right. I mean, mm -hmm. I think, what, there is three, four different endings to Yeah, it? and they're all, it's all, where does this, you know, magical sort of deus yeah, ex machina, friar voice absolutely. appear? And but it is, it is this kind of, uh, you know, it's the same thing that drives Figaro, is, is the same thing that drives Don Carlos, I think, which is this kind of l liberal consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that... So Don which Carlos... Is, which is, I think, you know, people who don't really, I don't know how to put this, no opera, sort of think it's actually something, you know, snooty and only thing posh people do and, and all that. But it's not what what drives it is the are these liberal ideas. And I think would say that's generally true of art. I think, you know... But 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 that's really what interests me. And uh, another thing on the bucket list, and you know, drives me. I want to do it at the same time. Is something is Madame Butterfly. I've ne I've never done it. And again, that sense of uh, that sense of injustice with it is is. Yeah, I, I find that very moving. Are there any operas you would prefer not to do again? <laughs> oh, lots. Freischutz. Sorry, I shouldn't say that because I did it. You know, I did it in in Norfolk, Virginia, a few years. Beautiful back. music and incomprehensible plot. Yeah, and really tough to stage. Yeah, I thought we had a good idea for it, which was which was you know that Washington Irving was a contemporary of Weber's. So we set it in America. We did it in English. Same, you know, and so it became Sleepy Hollow and the Headless Huntsman and all of that. That's a lovely idea. Yeah, well, it's a it's a good idea, but unfortunately, you know, the, the piece just doesn't quite dramaturgically doesn't hold together. No, it doesn't. No, but boy, yeah. the music is gorgeous. It is fantastic. Yeah, we've yeah. just had a production by, I a, heard, by yeah. an opera company here in Cincinnati, yeah. and it proved again the piece has glories in it, uh, but it is, it's really difficult to pull off. I've often thought it's one of those operas that if some, if some great filmmaker or some great video designer mm. got their hands on it, they might be able I to make some of... I think there were a couple of, of those kicking around. There yeah. was, I think there was a film made in the 60s in East Germany or something like that, in Dresden <laughs> or, or something, uh, that did it. But it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough one. If you were to advise uh, a young director mm just 
starting out, someone who had that same spark, improbable spark that you <laughs> did as a kid, what's some, what's some advice you'd offer? Particularly for someone wanting to get into this somewhat even smaller subset of directing of opera. Well, I think it's a lot harder these days because there weren't that many of us trying to get into it when I started out, or there didn't seem to be. Whereas now, I think there are lots of uh, people, and, and there are more opportunities, there are greater opportunities. But uh, I think... I, I always thought that one of the mistakes I made was to assist for too long. But in retrospect, I'm not entirely sure that that's the case. Because, you know, a production of The Marriage of Figaro, somebody else's production of The Marriage of Figaro, I know whether they, the director, knows it well enough. Because this is not a piece that you can be two steps behind. You have to be two steps ahead of it. And uh, I saw something, I'm not going to say where or who, I saw a production of it, where you knew that the director just hadn't been able, because it is so fast and so complex, especially Act 2, the Act 2 finale, been able to sort of grasp the material and, 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 and try and turn it into... And, and, and try and ride it, if you like. You know, it was riding him, and that's you can't do that with Figaro. You... So, and the only reason I know it so well is because I spent a long time assisting Peter on it, and 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 uh, and I must have sat through at Glyndebourne, like you know, hundred performances of each one. So, you you absorb it. Um, so, I mean, there's that. But the other thing you should do is is just get out and just find out what your voice is. And it takes a time to find out what your voice is. To when, find you say out. You, you're, when you say your voice, mm. obviously it means the same thing that a, as a singer finding the that those sets of colors that yeah. define their voice. For a young director, it's attitude. Well, I think it's voice? actually. I think it's something. You know, I think it's. I think it's as simple as what do you want to see? What do you like seeing? And I, I, I know that sounds slightly sort of self-evident, but it took me a long time <laughs> to work out that what I was doing was what I wanted to see, I, I, as opposed to what I was doing and being envious of what other people were doing, is is to try and find something that, you know, that this thing that you do you polish that to something that you are proud of. And I, you know, uh, at this stage in the game, I, what I do, I'm I'm proud of. And I, you know, I, I'm saying to you, I've just done a, a cousin in, in, in Essen. And I think the thing about the cousin in Essen, I think the thing about this Figaro, is that when you watch it, it doesn't come across as an opera. It comes across as a play. And uh, I think, I think... That's a good thing with the with these pieces, with these eighteenth century pieces. Um, you couldn't direct Puccini in this way. You couldn't direct Verdi in this way. You couldn't direct Wagner in this way. But with the eighteenth century stuff, you're I've, still given a little bit of license in that in that mm -hmm. respect, particularly in the alteration of recitative and set well, pieces. Recitative is always looked upon as a kind of, you know, this because I've done in Essen. Recitative is always looked upon as a kind of something you have to bear until the nice music comes back in. <laughs> but it's not. It's, it's what drives the plot. And for uh, an opera director to be able to have that kind of flexibility is an absolute joy for me. And, and uh, uh, yeah. I ask all of our guests mm. a small set of the same questions yeah. to get a sense of continuity and also variety. And especially... For a first-time visitor to Cincinnati, yeah. these some of these may not uh, apply, but I'm going to ask them anyway, and you okay. can say pass. Okay. <laughs> what do you usually have for breakfast? Well, it depends whether I'm smoking or whether I'm not smoking. <laughs> if I'm smoking, then I don't usually have breakfast. But I've quit for three days now, so um, bravo so, to you. So, so a couple of pieces of toast with some honey this morning. <laughs> Apart from Sundays. When, when you have a big fry-up, right? It's a big fry-up, yeah. Good. And good old-fashioned English yeah, fry-up. Absolutely, up. yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you deal with stress? Uh, 
um, it's just going to sound awfully sort of I don't, pretentious, but I don't really get stress anymore. I don't. Uh, that's how you. Know, you. That's how you deal with it. You well, say I, that there I, is. I obviously that. did. Um, yeah. I obviously did. And I guess at some points in my life, I've you know I've smoked too much and I've drunk too much, and and I guess that's how I dealt with it. But at this stage in the game, you, you don't. You know, I. I, I know something. Mm-hmm. I, I know something which I didn't know when I started out. I know I can get the show on. And when you start out, you don't know that. Mm-hmm. But the, I know. Whether it's, you know, whether it's something good like this or whether it's something not so good like, dare I say, Freischitz, I can get it on and I can get it on to a certain level. So and you've reached a state of calm in some ways and, and yeah. not, calm in, not calm in terms of passiveness, but you're, you know yourself. Well, yeah, yeah I, I do. And I know the product as well. Mm-hmm. And I know that, uh, you know, wherever it is, it, you know, I always say the most terrifying word in the German language is clavier Hauptprobe, um, piano dress, is wherever you are with a piano dress, you know it's going to be a war zone. <laughs> and the important thing is to actually sit there, get through the war zone as quickly as possible, and then sort it out the next day. You know, I mean, Our you, wonderful director of, Glenn, director of production, Glenn Plott, calls it the crash and burn rehearsal. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is. You know, and you, you know that that rehearsal, you may feel possessive about it, and you may want to go up there and, and change things, and occasionally I do. But that rehearsal is not really about me. It's about stage management. It's about the stage crew. It's about the wardrobe. It's about the wigs, makeup. It's you know, it, you, you learn, and so the stress factor has gone away. Yeah, and I, I know that sounds. I, I'm kind of aware of saying that because I think it, it makes it sound boring or the products boring but I don't think it is it, it you know it's I'm just kind of grateful it's gone away really <laughs> you've talked about a couple of people who have been important in your mm. career and I don't ask you to single out a single one but if you had to if you when you're talking to people who say well now my mentor was the person mm. who gave me the the real in a real insight into my work what would one person be for you well I mean there have been so many people that, who have people I've never met uh, who mm. influenced me and like John Barton who did this production of Richard II in this Twelfth Night uh, Giorgio Strehler the great Italian director I mean when I saw Strehler's work it, it it opened my eyes to a completely different very un-British style of production Patrice Gerault who I did meet uh, uh you know, but I guess the person that was most influential, I mean, I, influential is the wrong word, but the person I worked with the most was Peter, was Peter Hall, mm. uh, uh, who yeah, founded the Royal Shakespeare Company, brought the National Theatre into his new home on the South Bank, was artistic director at Glyndebourne, was director of productions at Covent Garden. You know. A nice resume. Uh, it's <laughs> it's pre- pretty spectacular, yeah. What are you reading at the moment? I am reading at the moment uh, a book by, I can't remember his name, which is terrible, which is about Cousy. Uh, And it's only been out about six months. And it basically, it it says what I believe, which is in Cousy, it's not the men who make the choice, it's the women who make the choice, much to the uh, chagrin of the men. I'm also reading a play uh, called Mighty Day, uh, and that's about it. And I'm also actually rather curious. I found in the bottom of my suitcase a set of Shakespeare's sonnets. I don't know how they got there, how long they've been there, but I'm reading those as well. Are there TV series or podcasts? Uh, Podcast is probably a foreign word to you, of which this is one. I did have to ask, what 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 is is a podcast? podcast? Exactly. Um, But is there television that you enjoy watching? Oh, yeah. I'm watching something at the moment called Killing Eve. Do you know? Yes, I do. It is utterly fantastic. Very dark. Very funny. Brilliantly written. Brilliantly performed. And I sort of ration myself to one episode a night. I try and I don't binge watch. I oh. when some of the favorite series that I have followed over the yeah. years have come on, yeah. friends of mine binge watch, and I said I can't do it. I really, it's like having that one chocolate or that one yeah. little glass of vodka. That's I mean that's your treat. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not very good at that. I mean, you know, I, I can't just it's like smoking. I can't be one of those people that says. Uh, 
I can have one every now and then. If I have one, that's it. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> here so, comes the pack. Yeah. So I did binge watch when it was out Breaking Bad, which mm-hmm. I thought was utterly phenomenal. True. And actually, I mean, a lot of the best work is now on television. It's not yeah. in, in cinema necessarily. Is there a phone app that you find particularly useful? Um, pass. <laughs> you haven't been in Cincinnati long, no. but has there been something that uh, that you have enjoyed that has is new to you for Cincinnati? Some something you well, discovered here? Well, I mean, here? it wasn't the the place I was expecting because I guess you know, having spent a long time in in lots of American cities, that, that you know, when you 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 drive or are driven from the airport to where you're staying, you expect to see sort of you know huge glass and steel and concrete skyscrapers and everything else. So to find this really beautiful sort of Victorian heart, at this, you know, it feels like a village. It, 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 absolutely beautiful. And in this really nice weather, I'm having a great time with all of that. I'm now I'm determined to go to the zoo because I know the, the pavilion's not there where the, where the Cincinnati Opera started out. But I, want to, I love the idea that... Um, we spent 50 years performing for the monkeys and the peacocks. Uh, well, I love that. You know, you know pe- people often say to me, they, they say to me, you know, did you always want to be an opera director? And I, I always say to them, you know, um, no, actually, I, what I really wanted to be was a zookeeper. <laughs> and I say to them, you know, sometimes there's not that much difference. Between no, there you. isn't. Maybe, maybe Depending should, on maybe what the rehearsal print, Maybe you shouldn't put that one out. Oh, so. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Is there a particular piece of career advice you've received that you treasure? Yeah. You know, from Robert Rattray, who was my agent for a while, and, you know, when you start getting the gigs, when you start getting the good jobs and, and places and like that, you know, you, I think it is true of our business, you'd know this. It is true that you see your status within the business in financial terms. And Robert said to me once, he said, you do the job for the art, not for the money. And I think I probably sort of riled at that at the time, but it's absolutely true. You do the job for the art, not for the dosh. Do you have a favorite musician outside of the world of classical music? I do. I loved Amy Winehouse, and mm-hmm. I, I've worked a lot with the um, the, the Belgian conductor um, René Jacobs, mm-hmm. and uh, I was working with René when when a- Amy Winehouse died, and. He was devastated hmm. because he said, "What a great voice this was, you know." And I was, I did Carmen a few years after she died, and we kind of went with the idea of her Carmen being like a- Amy Winehouse huh. in Santa Fe, you know, with when she was doing the chanson poem mm-hmm. with you know the beehive. She put the beehive on and and everything else. But it's funny. I mean, music, it, music kind of new music or different music kind of creeps up on you. I was doing this cuisine lesson, and I went to Berlin. And a friend of mine was doing experimental electronic music. And so I found myself in a cellar, covered, the place covered in graffiti, listening to this incredibly loud <laughs> electronic music, which was utterly startling. <laughs> because it, what, I suppose what I was expecting was something that, that was sort of pop, pop or mm-hmm. something like that. And it wasn't. It was absolutely serious music and the thing that these guys can get out of these synthesizers or computers has the same kind of nuance that you can get out of a symphony orchestra mm-hmm. and it was and and they are they sustain these long structures 25 minute structures and it was it was surprising and relevatory for me but that's music, isn't it? It is. I mean, that's what music the does. The element it, of surprise and the is, element of absolutely. wonder. Absolutely. And, 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 yeah, you know. If you uh, came across someone in the supermarket and you said you were an opera director and they said, well, I've never tried opera before, mm. what would be a bit of advice you would give them or a, a way that you would tell them to approach it to, to give it a try? Well, I would say it, if they said... Oh, I've never been to an opera before. I would say, but you probably know quite a lot of opera because it is pervasive. I mean, it, it's on television, it's in films, it's on adverts, it's, you know, uh, 
so people, I mean, like me when I started out, I knew more of it than I knew because it, as I say, had been sort of washing around the house in in, in Warrington. And uh, um, to go not assuming that it is this sort of posh, snooty, upper-class en- entertainment. It, that's not what it is. It's, it, it is, you know, it's, it, you know, music, music's, music's for everybody, isn't it? It's what, I guess, the problem with opera is, is that because of the forces involved in it, it takes a lot of money to put it on. Sure. And, uh, but but it it isn't what you think it is. It isn't this exclusive club. Far from it. I think it's it's something inclusive and. Uh, well, as you have proven to us these weeks, Stephen, with this production of the Marriage of Figaro, it is all of our stories. It uh, is. Yeah. It is the story of a, a a marriage that once might have been wonderful, but now yeah. has fallen into yeah. a sad routine. It's about the impetuosity of youth. The, yeah the joy of anticipation of getting married. Yeah. Uh, it's also about something else which I, I love about it, right from the start. You know, what we have to sort of remember with The Marriage of Figaro and Cousy and Don Giovanni is that the, the co-author is this wonderful man, Lorenzo da Ponte, who wrote the words. And this is in no way inferior... The words are no way inferior to Mozart's score. It doesn't get any better than than da Ponte's libretti for for, for these pieces and they are absolutely so well structured is Figaro in the second duet when Susanna's told him that the Count is is making moves on her kind of assumes that because he's doing it Susanna must want it or be involved somewhere and she says straight away don't you dare doubt me now if this is your wedding day shouldn't you have got all that stuff behind you behind you and the the piece is the process of Figaro and Susanna learning that the other person is faithful. And that is the most wonderful journey and, and, and story. And, 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 and something to which we can all relate. Absolutely. And it is, you know, it is, it is absolutely phenomenal. Stephen, thank you very much, much for joining us. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages.